Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Stay Healthy South Sound podcast, where we want to give you tips on staying healthy and even expose common myths about health and aging so you can enjoy a healthier and active life in the amazing South Sound. Brought to you by Dr. Jennifer Penrose, owner of Penrose & Associates Physical Therapy. Welcome to the Stay Healthy South Sound podcast. My name is Dr. Jennifer Penrose and with me today is Therese Jenks, MPO, LCO, prosthetic resident from Hanger Prosthetics and Orthotics. Today, our focus is on what an important role a prosthetist and orthotist plays in healthcare. And we're going to focus on amputees, but there'll also be things we touch on for bracing and making people more mobile with less pain if they have arthritis and other conditions. So thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast. Awesome to be here. Great. Today, our focus um, for our listeners is what an important role a prosthetist and orthotist plays in healthcare. And we're going to spend a little more time on the amputees. That's a pretty special population. So to start with, tell us your story. How did you end up even wanting to get into prosthetics? Yeah. So uh, I actually did my undergrad in biomedical engineering at University of Michigan. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do for a while, but I knew I wanted to work with my hands, but I also wanted to work with people. So I actually thought about med school for a while. I shadowed um, physical therapists, shadowed a little bit of everything in the healthcare field um, until someone finally told me about orthotics and prosthetics. And they're like, you might really like that. And so um, I started shadowing a lot in the area um, and just really asking them a lot of questions. And I was like, wow, this is really fascinating because I get to give people mobility back really instantaneously. Um, So it's a really cool opportunity that I get to work with patients at a vulnerable spot in their life and give them back mobility. No, that's fantastic. I think the role that you guys play is pretty crucial. And I'm glad that we get to talk about that today. So can you go a little bit more into your credentials of like kind of the schooling you had to go to and what you're where you're at now? Go ahead and elaborate on that. Yeah. So I think it's um, maybe five years ago, they changed everything over to master's program. So used to be certification. So a lot of um, the older generations just have certifications, but now it's a master's program. So I had to get my master's in prosthetics and orthotics. Um, And then after that, it's usually a two-year program. There's Um, 13 different schools in the United States. So it's a little bit um, smaller of a field, but, um, and then after your uh, master's program, you have to get residencies in each discipline, both orthotics and prosthetics. So I finished up my orthotics last year and almost done with my prosthetic residency currently. Oh, wow. So the residency program, is it how many months for each? Um, you can either do 12 months for both orthotics and prosthetics, which is what I did, or you can do an 18 month combined. Okay. Wow. So why don't you kind of talk a little bit about maybe a typical day or however you want to describe for our listeners, like what, what you do? Yeah. Um, yeah. Most people don't (laughs) understand what I do at all. Um, so usually I tell most people that I work with amputees or people with physical disabilities and giving them some kind of mobility back in whatever facet that looks like for the specific patient. So usually in, in different clinics, it's different, you know, different ways of doing things, but usually here we can see, you know, anywhere between six to 12 patients a day where it usually starts with an evaluation. We see a patient and we kind of figure out what they need back in their life. So usually we look at weaknesses, we look at range of motion, strength tests, things like that to figure out what they would best benefit from in either a device, a brace or a prosthesis. 
Do most of these patients come to you guys from referrals from physicians or do some patients even call you guys directly? Most patients come through referrals since we have to work on a referral basis from doctors, but we do get a couple patients who call or um, who want to get an evaluation still and then can go back to their doctor to get a prescription. But technically we can't do anything until we get a prescription from a doctor. Right. Well, at least patients or our listeners will know that this is an avenue they can pursue. Yeah, we definitely answer lots of questions via phone too, because oh, some I'm people sure. just don't even know what's out there too. So it's it's nice just explaining what even kind of braces or orthotic devices are out there for patients to relieve pain or help with weakness, things like that. Yeah. They may not know what all their options are. And the doctors don't always have as much time these days to talk through every single um, option that's available to them. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times patients just need to be their own advocate and then reach out and ask more questions. So that's great. Yeah, totally agree. Well, I'm going to back up again. I don't know if you mentioned, where where did you go to school? Where was your training? Oh, yeah. I went to Northwestern University in Chicago. Oh, yeah. I love Chicago. I know. Me too. It's a great place. <laughs> I lived right by Wrigley Field, so oh, it was amazing. Oh, fun. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And then your residency currently is at Hangar. Where was your orthotic one? It was here as well. Both. Oh, okay. Yep. Great. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how'd you end up in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, kind of a crazy, I was looking, I'm actually from Michigan um, and I was just wanting to be somewhere outdoors because I love the outdoors. And I applied to both Colorado and Washington, a lot of different residencies in there and Washington ended up winning because I flew out here and I fell in love with it <laughs> when yeah. I came out to interview and I was like, I think this is it. <laughs> yeah. No, this is a great place if you Mm -hmm. love the outdoors. Yeah, for sure. And if it's a little wet, you just have to have the right gear. I know. I was kind of happy about the no snow thing. So yeah, yeah. No, Chicago would definitely have snow. Yeah. Yeah. And the freezing. Yes. All right. So we're going to get a little bit more specific. Um, So let's talk a little bit about kind of the most common things that you help people with as a prosthetist and orthotist. So I'm going to let you kind of walk through a couple different most common things you see. Um, So probably the most common thing we see is definitely AFOs, meaning ankle foot orthotics. So usually seen for a drop foot, arthritis, anything going on basically with the ankle that needs some kind of bracing. Um, We also see a ton of spinal orthoses, meaning kind of back braces, anything from spinal fusion, so postoperatively to, you know, a scoliosis um, or patients with some kind of pain or uh, spinal stenosis, things like that of any sort. We'll see a lot of that here. Um, And then, of course, we see a lot of lower limb, below knee amputees a lot. That's the most common kind of amputation currently. Um, But we do see above knee a decent amount, too, and a couple upper limb here and there. Yeah. Um, Yeah, the drop foot, I'm just going to back up to that one. Um, that one, I think people, if our listeners don't know what that is, like your foot, if you're sitting there and you try and pick your foot up off the ground, you can't do it, which then is a problem when you're walking because then you're going to catch your toe and trip. So the drop foot, it becomes somewhat of a safety hazard to just go on and not have some kind of ankle foot orthosis, which we shorten for AFO. That one, um, for sure, I see it, several of those as well in the clinic. And and some of those can be um, post-operatively, something can happen or a stroke or mm-hmm. different different things like that. But that definitely is something that I think if people are struggling with, they can certainly request something like that. 
And then the back braces, you guys have some fantastic back braces. I've seen some of them. <laughs> um, so patients that I see that can barely stand up, I mean, that that can help them give them their mobility for a little while, get their life back until they can get their core stronger again yeah, and, and not need to rely on the brace. But it's a it's an option that lets people be more mobile and do life and function until they can get um, healed and get their strength back. So that's that's pretty neat. Um, and then same with scoliosis. I'm sure that – so scoliosis with the younger population – I'm assuming they see you at like regular checkups. Like, do they have to come in every, as they grow that, that curvature can change. They might need a different type. Like how walk through a little bit more of the scoliosis population. Yeah. So generally the most typical age that we see is anywhere between 11 to 15. Typically, um, most of them are just, um, idiopathic scoliosis. So not sure the cause, but, we usually see them, then we fit them with a brace and then we actually have them go get x-rays in brace to make sure that the brace is sufficient to correct the curve. But then after that, usually once we send off and they're not having too many issues here and there, we'll see them roughly every three to six months for sure. Because usually I tell most of my patients that we might need to see them or make a new brace anywhere between eight to 12 months. But usually it's it's in discussion with a physician of when exactly they're done growing too. So um, we, they look at their x-rays to see exactly on their um, iliac crest. We look at kind of a part on that to see when they're done growing, to see if they need another brace potentially or if they're done with bracing. And when they're using the bracing, do they, they wear it 24 hours a day other than showering? Like how, how rigorous are most of these protocols for these kids? Yeah. So there's two different types of bracing that we do. There's night bracing and daytime bracing. So night bracing is actually an overcorrective brace that they only wear at night. So we do that for a decent amount of our kids who are fairly active, involved in sports a lot, who aren't able to wear it during the day as much, um, or depending on what kind of curve they have to. So it's more aggressive mm -hmm. when you say overcorrect. It's actually really trying to force that curve to... Yep. Okay. Yeah, so it's an overcorrective because they're wearing it less hours of the day. So ideally, they're wearing it anywhere between 8 to 12 hours a day. But there is a daytime brace as well that we use for a decent amount of our patients that it is a 23 out of 24 hour protocol wearing. But the research shows that over 18 hours is really the key for daytime bracing. So a little less aggressive, but the research has shown that if they don't wear any or if they wear any less than 18 hours, then they're not getting the benefit from the brace. So we definitely advocate for as much time as possible. So usually out of it, obviously for sports or showering, things like that. But other than that, we try to recommend wearing it as much as they can to get as much correction as we can get. And most more often girls than boys, right? For whatever yeah, reason. For whatever reason, it seems like, yeah, way more girls, probably nine out, of the, nine out of the 10 people that we see are female. Yeah. And I see the same thing later on with adults as I'll see it more in the women than I will the men that, you know, mm. their curve kind of followed them for a little while. And then those girls, are they often doing some kind of core strengthening program as well? Or are they mainly just doing the bracing or do you, do you is it hard to answer because may not necessarily know? Probably a little bit of a combo. I would say it depends on the physician that we have and what their protocol is a little bit too. But I would say not as many are doing core strength as probably would want, but a decent amount of them too are involved in a lot of sports. So they are getting obviously some kind of strengthening in some capacity, but yeah, definitely something that we want to look for. Right. Yeah, no, I... 
This is something I'll bring up for the listeners. There's what's called the Schroth method. So those of you out there that really want to look that up, it is a way to strengthen certain part of the muscles on certain parts of the curve to correct the curve. And it's very detailed and it um, has been shown in the literature to be helpful um, to straighten out that curve. And I think those that do the bracing with that have probably the best outcome. So it's definitely something that it, it takes time, but these, these individuals learn because they learn their curve. Not every curve is the same. It's very individual um, for the degrees of rotation and wear. And so they start to learn how, what sides of the curve to really work on. And it's different. And so once they learn that, they kind of know it for, for life, basically, and how to, to strengthen and how to use different kinds of, um, I don't even want to call them props, but there's different ways to kind of put, um, whether it's little sandbags in their, they're laying down on the ground and they can put little pressure on certain parts of the curve to help it straighten out. So it's a, it's a pretty precise rehab process, but I would say for, if anyone's listening on that, that looking that up. So Schroth is S C H R O T H is how you spell it. And I'm sure everybody can go YouTube some videos. <laughs> not, not that I would try to tell you to do the exercises via YouTube because they're very specific, but at least it gives you an idea of what we're talking about with that. Um, same with the the back bracing with fusions or with post-op and with um, back sprains, like really that aftercare and follow-up piece is really important to get all your, you know, the bracing is great to get you through it, and it's meant for a certain part of your time in your recovery, but also speak up for getting your strength back and getting your mobility back so that you can really get back to everything. Can we touch on arthritis and like unloader break? Like I see a lot of knees that, you know, a patient will have a trip coming up mm -hmm. and they don't want to get their knee replaced at this time. And they're trying, you know, they're in therapy, they're strengthening, they're working on their stretching and kind of that unloader brace option helps them buy them more time and maybe get through whatever's coming up before they maybe need to consider a knee replacement. So I know you guys fit for that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So knee unloader braces work on a three-point pressure system. So usually we're just trying to unlock decent amount of people tend to have it on the inside of their knee, um, known as the medial side. And what we do is we, with bracing, we have three-point pressure system. So it's a pressure that's pushing your knee um, in on the outside of your knee and then up on both sides of your calf and thigh to try to unlock and basically prevent bone-on-bone -bone rubbing or anything like that. So yeah, they're they're meant for potentially delaying um, reconstruction surgery of any sort or just offloading some pain of some sort because some patients just get that pain from that bone-on-bone -bone action. So if we can just get a little bit of push to unlock that somewhat, then sometimes we can have patients who can delay things or at least decrease pain so they can be up and mobile longer. So we have a decent amount of patients who put them on in the morning, wear them all day, and they say that they can walk a lot longer with these kind of braces. Do they have to be custom or are there like sizes that will fit like a general range so they're not quite as um, expensive for them if they, if they want to get one? Yeah. So they do run fairly expensive still, sadly, but they do go off of measurements. So there's like a small, medium, large. So we take measurements, but they are a general, unless a patient has an extreme deformity of some sort, we can usually use off the shelf knee braces for that. Okay. Yeah. 
that's been, that's probably the, one of the larger things that I see where I, I would be like, okay, this would be an, an option for mm-hmm. you to help you get you through. I think the one complaint I'll sometimes hear from them is just the, the bulkiness of them. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, I'm sure there's different styles and different versions. What is, what has been your, have people been compliant with them? How, what's your take on, on that? Yeah. I think with any orthotic device on the market, if, if the benefits outweigh the costs, then usually people wear them. So if their pain is decreased, if they're functional longer, meaning they're up and standing longer, then usually people don't care about the bulk. Okay. But I would say some people also find that maybe they don't love the bulk of it. So they wear them only when they have to, or things like that. But the cool thing is about our field is there's always innovation coming too. So there's now this company that's making 3d printed offloader knee braces that are extremely lightweight. So I think a lot of people who are bilateral don't enjoy enjoy the bilateral uh, or wearing them on both sides, I should say, um, because they're extremely bulky. And sometimes depending on how they walk, they can have them hit. They can rub. Yeah. They hit side to side. So not ideal. So usually the patients who just have it on one side don't mind it as much, but um, there's definitely cooler options that I even see coming out that potentially could help navigate the weight of them, help navigate the way that they slip potentially because every knee brace on the market currently tends to slip if you are wearing it all, all day. Um, so yeah, that's the cool part about innovation too, is trying to figure out what's currently wrong with the ones on the market and what we can we do better to have patients wear them longer to help them with pain and keep them mobile longer as well. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing is, is sometimes I have patients who will come in and they'll, they'll have one and they just haven't problem solved it enough. Um, so usually I'm, I'm, we'll, we'll try and work with it in the clinic, but sometimes I'm like, okay, you need to go back because, mm-hmm. you know, bracing isn't something I do every day, but those guys, they know how it fits. They know they can tweak it. They can tell you what, what would help to make it fit better. So people should, if you're listening and you have one and it doesn't work, go back and see what else they can do to play with it. Cause you guys, will you see people a couple times on some of those braces just to get the fit right? Yeah, definitely. And even just explaining how to put on and off. Sometimes patients just need a little extra help just learning how to put it on and off. Cause there is four or five straps potentially, um, tightening that. So yeah, we'll see a decent amount of patients here or there. If we have to tweak, if they're getting a little bit of pressure here or whatnot, we can definitely unload that in certain areas to make it a little bit more comfortable for them. Yeah, there seems like there's some there's some art yeah. <laughs> involved with it. <laughs> I know, right? A little bit of tweaking here and there. Anything else that you commonly see that you want to let people know that you guys can help with so that our listeners are just aware? Uh, yeah, we also see cranial remolding helmets too. So that's something that we orthotists do as well. So for the kids who have tend to have flatness on either their both sides of their back of their head or one side due to either torticollis or just even I see some kids for acid reflux if they have to sleep um, just on their uh, the foam backing that we do that here as well for those kiddos. Oh, so the little, little guys. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. No, oh, that's good. Yeah. They turn out pretty cute. Do they wear that then just when they sleep or do they wear it all the time? Yeah. So once the, um, kiddos in the helmet, they wear it 23 out of 24 hours a day. Cause we're just trying to capture every growth possible. So how the helmets work is we don't necessarily provide, we don't push the head into different uh, positions, but we just a lot for all new growth in that spot. That's not having the growth. So we hold the spots that, that are having say per se excessive growth. And then we have a gapping in the helmet where it needs to grow into. Brilliant. I'm glad someone thought of that. (laughs) What do you really enjoy about serving our community as a prosthetist? What's your favorite thing about it? 
I think my favorite thing about it, which I've probably already alluded to earlier, is giving people mobility back really practically. I mean, I get to see patients who were in a wheelchair six months and then I put a leg on them and they are up and walking for the first time in six months, which really does bring tears to your eyes sometimes because they're like, wow, I you know, I never thought I could do this again. Or even someone who has drop foot that we talked about earlier, who has trouble walking and trips and falls. And then they put on an AFO that picks up their foot and they're like, I cannot believe how like easy this is to walk now. So I think that's literally one of my favorite parts is just working with my patients and seeing like, Hey, let's try to figure out a problem to get you more mobile, to prevent you from falling, to, you know, increase your balance of some sort, because especially if there's weakness that can't be compensated in other ways, obviously bracing is only as useful as with everybody else from the healthcare team or um, prostheses too. But I think that's definitely my favorite part is working with patients and trying to get them back to their goals of some sort. So some patients are like, I want to walk from my house to my mailbox without pain. And obviously we can always, we can't always solve that completely, but if we can either decrease the frequency of pain or the intensity of pain in some way, then it's pretty exciting to have that opportunity to work with a patient to get them to potentially then have that um, solution in some way. There's another one that comes to mind when you were talking that's tricky that, um, Sometimes the tendons in the foot wear out with age and just their, their foot type, their mechanics, um, and they're not really a candidate for surgery or that surgery is really, really tricky to repair some of those tendons in the foot and ankle. So getting the right combination of orthotic and potentially prosthetic, like bracing with an orthotic, that's been something that's been a challenge for some of my patients just to get it to fit correctly and to help them be more mobile. But when, when it is, when they, when it does happen and it works well, I mean, then they suddenly have their life back. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming you see some of those where it's like a orthotic and brace kind of combo. I think like the Richie brace, I don't know if that's mm-hmm. a version of it. Yeah. Probably like in Arizona, Arizona makes a brace that's almost like a custom lace up kind of brace as well. So yeah, we do see a decent amount of patients that sometimes need to be with a foot orthotic because they need some kind of arch support as well with in combination with some ankle support. Your field is very closely related to physical therapy. Like the why physical therapists go into what they do is often for the same reasons you're listening. So it's pretty neat. Totally. Um, so we're going to break to hear from our sponsor and then we'll be back in a minute. As a listener to the Stay Healthy South Sound podcast, we are offering a free PT discovery visit. If you need a tune-up with walking or want help with whatever pain you're facing, we can help with the hurdles that stand in your way. Contact us at 360-456-1444. That's 360-456-1444 to sign up for your free discovery visit today. And now, back to the show. All right, so we are going to dive into more specifics with amputees. What are some of the main reasons someone loses a limb? And and if you want to talk first lower extremity and then a little bit of upper upper extremity, that would be fine too. So I'll let you kind of dive into that. Yeah, so for lower limb, the highest majority is dysvascular, so meaning that it's probably due to some kind of typically diabetes or some kind of blood clotting issue of some sort. Basically, they're not able to um, revascularize the foot, and so they're ending up having to amputate it. Um, Another issue is trauma or even 
congenital too. Sometimes people are just born with, um, limb deficiencies of some sort. Um, upper limb tends to be a lot more trauma based just because usually legs are the ones that actually get dysvascular where hands and arms don't as much. So it's usually a lot of people who work in a lot of machinery because they generally tend to lose it that way, sadly. Um, or even car accidents. Um, every now and then too, you see osteosarcoma, which is just bone cancer of some sort too. So a decent amount of I mean, compared to relative, some people lose their limb that way too as well. Okay. Yeah. There's a little more reasons there than what I initially had thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and amputees, they just have so much to deal with. I mean, emotionally, mentally, socially, and then physically. Like, I, I think it's important that we kind of touch on some of that as we go here. So your role with the amputee, um, you know, making that prosthesis, maybe you can talk a little bit more about how that process works to just kind of describe it for some of our listeners. Usually most of the time, if we can, we try to see the amputee shortly after their amputation. If not, we consult prior to if they know by chance that they're getting an amputation. Obviously, a lot of these can be emergencies, so they're not able to get consulted before. But we usually try to show up in the hospital shortly after, if not that day or whatnot, to talk about um what their life could look like connecting them with a mentor in either the area or online, because um, even just being a prosthetist, someone who will give them a leg eventually, there's a lot of different roles that we're trying to play too. like emotionally, a lot of things are going on. Potentially um, their health wasn't that great prior to the amputation too. So we really want to look at what can we help with a social worker too, or what is their home life looking like? So we're definitely an advocate in a lot of avenues in their life rather than just really looking at getting them up and moving again. So we usually see them out in the hospital, talk about um, prostheses. A lot of them generally don't know even what's out there because if you don't need our products, you generally don't know about us, um, which is a good thing. <laughs> but um, the patients who who do all of a sudden come to the fact that they need something from us um, usually don't know much about the field. So we usually try to explain the process because it's usually even if after the amputation, it can be six to eight weeks till they're even up and moving again just due to stitches healing Um if they're having any wounds or anything like that, that needs to all be healed up before we're really weight bearing on that too. But we walk them through, we usually um, grab their information too. So we're talking to them on sort of weekly basis, if potentially too, so that we're following them, seeing how they're doing in their recovery process. If they've seen their doctor, if they start seeing physical therapy, some see physical therapy prior to even getting their prosthesis, because we want to make sure that their mobility is, is, well, so that when they're up and walking, that they're able to, rather than getting stiffness in their hips or knees, because they're in a wheelchair, basically 24 seven, depending on what kind of help they have or how mobile they are, if they're able to hop on one foot, things like that. But usually we're following up with them continuously seeing where they're at. If they need, you know, a psychologist, are we reaching out to a psychologist to see if they can get some you know, therapy of some sort that way too, or if they need someone to talk to. So we're kind of trying to find different avenues until we, we work directly with them with a prosthesis too. But once we see them for the start of a prosthesis, it usually takes anywhere from four to six weeks to from start to finish as well with a patient. So it's a, it is a long process and we follow up multiple times too. So it's, it's a cool opportunity that we really start building that relationship with them. That, that's the biggest thing when I've had an amputee prior to the prosthesis coming in for them, like just 
seeing them even in the clinic to help them mentally and socially, emotionally, um, you know, they, they need that support in a lot of different avenues and then letting them know, like, look, if you, you want this prosthesis to work really well for you, then these are the exercises that have to be done because if you don't do them, you won't have the strength to use it. Mm-hmm. You won't have the range of motion to use it. It, it won't be effective. So explaining that in ways that they understand so that they'll stay with the program. Cause that's usually the, some of the, the difficulties or challenges that I face is them. Um, if they're not doing it, they get, you know, flexion contractures, meaning they, they get stuck in a certain position and they can't straighten their limb out. And therefore they won't be able to use that prosthesis very effectively. And then they also start muscle wasting and so then their measurement that they just had taken for the Mm -hmm. device is no longer valid because they are losing muscle mass and now that device won't fit them so those are the challenges i end up running into but it sounds like um in terms of like them getting other support is so crucial early on so that they stay motivated because i can't blame them their life has been completely altered and to be motivated and do what they need to do you can end up just kind of in a, in a, in a dark place where you're not motivated to do the things that people are trying to cheer you on to do. So that's great that they're getting connected with a mentor and potentially psychology if they need it. Totally. I mean, you're, you really need time to grieve the loss of something. I mean, they, especially some patients who were just a year prior were had no issues at all. And then all of a sudden they end up in this weird situation that, you know, some surgery failed or some kind of something happened and now they are where they are. Um, and so it really is a grieving period for a lot of patients that they really do need that time, even just to grieve, to discuss how other patients have made it, you know, how they've gotten mobility back or even just that it's possible. Some patients I think are sometimes like, Oh, I, I didn't even know that was possible to be able to do that again. And with the advancements in technology nowadays, even with, um, below or above knee amputation, There's a lot out there that most patients can do, get to the activity that they were at one year prior to the amputation. So there's not necessarily a hindrance per se, just based on the technology available, whether they can run, walk, play golf, you know, um, take care of their kids, take care of their grandkids, things like that. So is one of the biggest indicators that you see whatever their prior level of function was prior to the amputation is very kind of indicative of what their function will be after they get the device. Yeah. Usually we say whatever you were at like one year prior to the amputation, even six months, potentially that's usually where you end up being after too. So generally some patients are like, I want to run. And and then we ask, were you a runner prior to the amputation? And some weren't necessarily, but if the people have the motivation and drive, I do think they can do a lot more even potentially after, because it can kind of almost jolt start people into being like, Hey, I actually need to take control of my health again. Um, But yeah, usually that's a key indicator. So if someone's using like a walker a year before, they usually will have to continue using a walker with a prosthesis as well, generally. But yeah, the technology is amazing, especially with um, like the feet. Like we've seen, his name is escaping me, but there was an uh, Olympic athlete that raced in the summer games in the regular Olympics with a prosthesis. And, you know, he was compete qualified and was competing. It was, you know, pretty remarkable. And so I don't know if you want to touch on that in terms of the technology for some of those. Yeah. I mean, I think the advancements are 
awesome that we keep having too. Cause it's like, well, how can we make it better? How can we make it more like even the human foot? So a lot of the running feet is very different from the day-to-day feet. Cause most patients will not want to walk on a runner's foot per se, just cause of the almost energy return of it. Um, you get like like, spring loaded as you're walking. (laughs) Yeah, basically. So it's not ideal to walk normal day to day with those kind of feet, but, um, the advancements are, are really cool. So there's the bigger advancements currently are like microprocessor feet they're called. So meaning that they have sensors in the feet to signal where exactly they are in relation to the ground, meaning that they'll adjust for, Um, uneven terrain or they'll adjust if you're walking up a ramp or down a ramp and then they'll adjust the stiffness based on that so um, many patients with a stiff heel or one foot that's fixed at 90 degrees per se at the ankle they'll have to almost toe into a ramp so they are they aren't able to have their foot directly flat with the ground but the advancements nowadays that with microprocessor feet, they'll simultaneously do that. So they'll bring the foot all the way to the ground, which is really nice because it's supposed to reduce load on the residual limb or, um, which can help prevent, you know, skin breakdown, things like that, that are, can occur with patients. I would say that's one of the biggest challenges that I have in the clinic. Um, if there's an amputee coming for gait training and, um, using their, their, um, limb, the, just checking that skin all the time, especially if they're diabetic and just the, the amount of pressure that's on the, the residual limb, that's probably been one of our biggest challenges. I don't know if that's what you guys also face too. When people come in to get checked, if that's just a real, that that, that is one of the big challenges. Yeah, definitely. And a, a lot of these patients have limited sensation or the sensation kind of gets thrown off based on the way the amputation was done because the calf muscles pulled through to the front part of the uh, front part of the shin. So some people um, can almost feel like they have pain in the back of their calf, but it's actually at the distal end or the bottom of their limb. So some of it just throws it off the sensation too. But some patients who have limited sensation, they're, you know, not really necessarily always checking their skin too. And then they don't feel all of a sudden they have a big issue somewhere. So that's, that's key. We usually tell patients when they first start with a prosthesis too, to only wear, you know, an hour for the first day, check their skin, two hours the next day, check their skin, just so that we can ensure that we're not getting blisters. Cause we don't obviously want them to get set back to that. We have some issue that then they're not able to wear their leg for a while too, after we worked so hard to get them where we are and then, um, have to go backwards to, um, get that wound healed. Cause we definitely, don't want that to set someone back quite a ways, but it's hard when patients are very, um, you know, excited to walk again. And so when they get a leg, sometimes it's hard to tell them to even slow down still. Yeah. So. That would be a real big challenge, I think, cause you know, they haven't been able to walk and now they finally have something that will let them, but doing it in a way that is gradual and lets their body get acclimated and the skin get tougher. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and when they first get it, do they have then scheduled follow-ups with you guys so that you guys can check how it's functioning um, and spot any pro- like try to troubleshoot ahead of time? 
roughly what our general standard is, is that we'll see them every two weeks for three or four appointments. So until, but the nice thing is, is that we work with physical therapists or people like you two who can let us know if they're seeing an issue as well, or they're seeing their doctor who can let us know if there's an issue that arises after that time. But even when patients first get a prosthesis, usually the first socket, which the socket is the actual part that connects to them, um, to their limb that is custom made for them, that is usually remade anywhere between four to six months because their limb is shrinking so much because it atrophies based on just the fact that it's not attached to an ankle anymore. The the muscle atrophies because it's not attached to anything. So we usually have to um, make a new socket just because the limb is getting smaller and smaller and we we end up maxing out the amount of pads we can put in a socket or whatnot. So usually we're seeing patients for when they're a new amputee f- for quite a bit because we're getting two or three socket changes or new sockets in the first two years potentially of their amputation. So we're seeing them pretty regularly and luckily, like I said, um, physical therapists can let us know if, if it's something redness is happening, if it's an alignment change, so meaning we can actually change something in their, you know, foot or, or pile on their shin part that can make it a little bit more comfortable versus something that's actually hitting them directly in the socket. No, that's good to know. I, I always wondered like, what is the norm in terms of how many times you have to make that socket change just based on the atrophy process of the muscles? Cause I think in my first few times with amputees, I always felt bad. Like I felt not responsible, but like, oh, did I not tell them to work it enough? Like the strengthening at home, like to try to keep as much strength as they can. But then, you know, hearing you talk about like, that's part of the normal process. Like you fully expect to be changing that a couple times for the first couple of years. It sounds like till it finally becomes the size that it's going to be with just their activity level. Yeah. Usually um, patients don't mature. It's called a mature residual limb till three to five years after amputation. Obviously some patients can always have, there's some patients that we always chase volume. Um, sometimes it's like we're, we're chasing a moving target, even in, um, their first sockets too. Cause some patients all of a sudden they haven't worn their shrinkers. So we have shrinkers, which are basically tight socks that patients put over their residual limb to try to decrease that volume and to shape it well. So some patients, if they weren't able to wear it, they can almost, it's called dog ears, but their residual limb has close to looking dog ears. So the bottom part is wider than their knee. And those are really hard to fit sockets for. So we, we recommend shrinkers early on so that their limb can shrink and the, and the uh, fluid in it can circulate through the whole body. Yeah, that will help with fitting. Yeah. I would, I can see where that would be a problem. Um, has there been a unique case that you've worked with that you want to highlight? You don't necessarily have to mention their, their name, but like, was there a unique case of anyone that like really sticks out in your mind that you, um, I don't know that you just really thought was pretty neat to see from start to finish. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking of one of my patients. He, uh, it's pretty interesting cause he lost his legs two years prior than when I even saw him due to a trauma accident, due to a car accident. Um, but he has, he had a wound that was just taking a while to heal. So, um, got him finally set up with a prosthesis and he's pretty mobile as is cause he can, 
you know, almost hop around, spin in circles on one leg. So I was like, sweet, he's going to fly with this prosthesis. He's going to do really well. And then he missed an appointment and then he came back and his other leg was actually amputated too due to just dysvascularization of, of somewhat, but he doesn't have diabetes. So you're always like, what is going on there? Um, but then I was able to fit his other one for it too. And he's, I mean, he was losing weight pretty quickly too. He's only like 90 pounds, so he's not much, but, um, after and so then it it's hard too because you're like oh well we just fit him with this prosthesis now we have to wait you know for the next one um which that can be anywhere from like I said six to eight weeks earlier too so finally saw him come back after that healing process and got him fit with the other ones and he stood up and he's like I finally can dance again and um we usually set up patients a lot shorter than they originally were too so his wife was there and that that was really cool because he's like I can dance with my wife again because that was going on two and a half years that he's ever stood up. Um, so that's that was one of my cool patients, not necessarily a cool case per se, but really exciting in a way that it, it was a long journey and we finally got to see him walk and stand and dance a little bit for his wife. So that was really exciting. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Those are the those are the reasons we get up and come to work every day, right? Totally. <laughs> exactly. I know it keeps you going. Yeah. In terms of the better outcomes with amputees, um, the ones that do really commit to following up with you guys and staying with their appointments and then also working with um, counselors and physical therapists, do you see a pretty big difference between those that are going to physical therapy versus some that just, for whatever reason, they're not? They're not um, kind of talk about some of the, I guess, in terms of what you see as a successful outcome, what what contributes to that? I guess I'm making some assumptions, but I'm like, what, what do you see on your end of it when you're seeing them in a successful outcome? What are all the things that they did right? Yeah, I think a, a successful outcome comes from them working with their whole healthcare team. So meaning they're getting the therapy if they need therapy or the just to create the mental capacity to even understand what it's like to be an amputee now, because it, it is a full change of your life. So I think the people who seek out their own care and per se from their doctor have, um, so they get good physical therapy. They go to physical therapy, they show up to their appointments. Um, they get strength strengthening throughout their, um, limb and body because a lot of patients can be fairly unmotivated because they can get depressive or, you know, other symptoms from losing a limb because it is, it is, um, a huge loss in their life. Um, and it changes their life dramatically. So, um, I think the patients who really turn out successful is the ones who have pretty good family support too, or some kind of support at home of any sort. Um, and so if they have that at home or if they're able to seek it out through some kind of program that either we have, they're able to talk to patients or even they're, um, able to talk to, there's an amputee coalition too. So they have support groups in each area, um, of the country. They're a nationwide, um, organization that is basically fights for amputees in different organizations or ways. So, um, that's a really good way for patients to find support that they maybe don't have at home of some sort too, or that they can just talk to people who went through similar stories as them. Cause I think some of them 
they don't normally see other amputees. Obviously, I see a high majority, so it seems like a, there's almost a lot more out there, but you realize in, in their circles, it's not like they have other people who look like them or who have the same issues or, um, and even just learning from other people like, hey, this is what I do when I shower now because I don't, or this is what I do, you know, when I'm trying to do X, Y, and Z during my normal life. Um, but I would say having patients work with their whole realm of, uh, healthcare team is a huge importance because we're only one part. We only can give a leg, but if, if they're not going to physical therapy, if they're not seeing their doctor, if they're not mentally, um, you know, grieving the loss and then mentally changing their attitude to wanting to be mobile again, if they don't have the motivation, then a leg really is nothing for them too. So I think that's the main key Yeah, is really working with everyone in their healthcare team. Yeah. No, I would think that would be, that's kind of what I see on my end when they have all those pieces in play, they do a lot better. And, you know, working with them in our clinic, we have parallel bars, which allow amputees to really work on, um, walking. So they're they're basically for our listeners, there's these two metal bars on either side of you for about 12 feet and you can get a good amount of walking back and forth in them. And you can have mirrors on either end of it to look, to see how you're correcting, the gate and to see when I tell you what you're doing, you can actually see the correction and that makes a huge difference in their confidence and their ability to retrain and learn how to basically how to manipulate that prosthetic limb the way in which they need to. Um, but it seems like that, that makes all the difference if they can actually kind of find a place that will really work with their walking not just give them the exercises on, on the bed to do at home, but like, let's really look at this. Let's look in the mirror. Let's, you know, slow this down. Let's practice weight shifting and balance and in a way that they can control it, you know, and have that confidence. I I feel like that's a big element for them to be successful, but if they don't have that motivation and they don't have all those pieces in play, I can't help them. I know. So it's a, it's a big thing. I'm glad to hear they have a, that they get assigned a mentor and that there's a group because all of us need to find our own communities, mm-hmm. if you will. We all need our own people to connect to. And for them especially, that that's pretty critical. So I'm glad that that's something that is just automatically like mm-hmm. at least given to them, the resource given to them to help them succeed. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I completely agree. It's like we can give someone all the resources, but if they don't follow up on their own, sadly, it it can be lost. So the key is though, is if we can make as many resources available for them so that we can set them up for a win, I'd like to say that um, hopefully we can then see a win too. So I think the other thing to bring up with that population is similar actually to my other patients. Um, I I try to remind people like in life, you're going to need tune-ups. I call them just like our cars need tune-ups, our bodies might need a tune-up. And especially in the amputee world, I would think from time to time they're going to need a tune-up, whether it's their device, whether it's how they're, if suddenly, you know, they were ill for a while and couldn't, you know, they had to rest and now they're really weak and deconditioned, you know, don't be afraid basically to reach out for a tune-up, whether it's with their prosthetic limb, whether it's therapy, um, or something in life happens that really just knocks you down again into a dark place and you need that um, counseling services again, like recognizing when like, all right, I need to do something about that. But I would imagine in your world, they do kind of circle back every now and then because something changes. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. We usually see, I mean, patients are eligible for new things 
every year too for part of their prosthesis. So even just making sure that they get new liners or suspension sleeves, which are the things that go directly on the skin, um, those need to get replaced a decent amount too, just because of wear and tear. If you are wearing it every day, it's it's gonna you know break down. So, um, but yeah, definitely usually patients to need a new prosthesis every three to five years too, roughly. So just based on if they are wearing it quite a bit, usually just the breakdown, things like that. Obviously, feet can even break if they're super active. Things like that happen all the time. So generally, it's it's fun because it is a lifelong relationship with the patients, really. I would think so in that in that group. Yeah. And I, I mean, I just I'm obviously an advocate for mobility and strength mm-hmm. for life. And so I'm also very much that way with my patients. Like, don't be afraid to reach out to us again. You know, any kind of thing, ache, pain, whatever that limits what you want to do get on it early. Like let's fix it. So yeah, I like being considered part of their, their team for, you know, people go to the dentist, you don't, you know, go to the dentist every, you know, twice a year. Physical therapy is one of those things where I'm like, I feel like we should do like mobility screenings like once a year to catch things before they happen. Yeah. I totally agree. That'd be huge. So I think we'll, we'll wrap up a little bit, but some words of advice that's kind of going along with what we're talking about with the people, um, keeping people active, mobile, healthy, and enjoying the South sound. And this could be, doesn't have to be related to the amputee population per se, but things that you, you know, sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I go home and I think, I wish people knew this, you know, that would help them longevity wise. So I don't know if anything strikes you right now. Like, okay, what is it that I really wish people would do? I think in general, I always try to tell patients is you're your best advocate. So, um, talking to your doctor and then even having your doctor, like, have you have call orthotics and prosthetics company, you know, call us, see if there is something, tell us what your problem is. Cause, um, you don't know what you don't know. Right. So, um, I always tell patients if, if you have any concern, I mean, luckily the internet is pretty good nowadays too, but I would say if you, if you have any concern that you think something like a bracing, um, specifically more for probably these patient, more bracing options, or obviously if you're an amputee, a prosthesis, but, um, don't be afraid to ask the questions or, or look up online or, um, you know, see what, see what's out there. Because I think, um, most patients don't know and they, they come in and they're like, wow, I didn't, I wish I would have come sooner. And so I think that's always sad when I'm like, yeah, I I wish you did too. But sometimes even just the looks of device, like I would say really, if you can find something that the benefits outweigh the cost of looks or whatnot with bracing, because I think some people are really concerned with the looks because it's obviously something attached to the outside of something. It's not just, you know, an extension of your clothing or whatnot. But I'd say that even just, we have a lot of trials here too. So even if you can just try it on and see the actual benefits of it, then that makes a huge difference too. So sometimes, um, if we can get you up and walking longer and farther distances, that's huge. So, um, we want to just keep you, you know, as mobile for as long and as far as possible. Cause once you start sitting, that's when a lot of issues become apparent too. So, um, if there's anything that's eliminating you, that is decreasing your mobility, I would say that's when I would start asking. So if you're walking less, if you're having pain in certain areas, and then that's causing you to walk less or walk shorter distances or something, I'd say that's the first sign to really talk to your doctor about what's going on so that we can solve that problem to get you back up and moving. I I would totally echo that. I think that's great advice. And, you know, 
doctors are, they're often screening for the big, bad, ugly stuff, right? So they're often looking for um, diseases um, and ordering the right labs every year to screen for any kind of diseases. And so this, this stuff about bracing and physical therapy for a arthritis or minor ache and pain, it might not be on the top of their brain. And I'm not trying to, you know, put them down by any means, but you may have to go ahead and just ask for what you need just because they're, they are always looking out for some of those bigger problems, but this is still important for you to get resolved if you can't move as well. So, and they don't want you to get weaker and then have a fall and then all the consequences that can go along with that. So to wrap up some of our rapid fire questions, what is your favorite restaurant in the South Sound? Oh, well, I actually live up in Tacoma. So I would say Elk's Temple is one of my favorite, which is a McMinimins place to go to. Yeah, no, that one is good. What is on your bucket list to do in the South Sound area? Yeah, so I'm an avid hiker and backpacker. So um, one of my main things is, is I really want to go to Hurricane Ridge. I've never been there in the Olympics. Um, and I'd also love to summit Mount Adams. Yeah. Those are both great. I've done Hurricane Ridge, but I have not, I have not summited Mount Adams, but yeah, those are great. Um, what is your favorite place or thing to do in the South Sound outside that you would recommend people get out and do or visit? I always recommend people go to Mount Rainier National Park. I think it's absolutely breathtaking. I think it's so beautiful. I think it's like no other national park I've been to because it's like nothing else you see and all of a sudden Mount Rainier is right there. So I always highly, highly, highly recommend people do that. Or I love Starbucks Reserve Room up in Seattle. It's like a brewery, but for Starbucks, it's really, really cool. So if you're a big Starbucks lover, I'd highly recommend going to there because they have drinks that they sell there that they don't have anywhere else in the world. Yeah. The only thing about Rainier is get up early, totally. get, get there early. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise you'll be sitting in the car for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Leave early. Totally. Um, and then what is your best tip for people? You kind of talked about this to stay healthy and fit in the South Sound. And I think you kind of touched on that. Just be your own advocate and get help sooner. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've heard um, sitting is the new smoking. So um, I would say whatever you do, if you can even just walk a mile, walk at your lunch break, walk. Um, obviously, it's hard with the rain here for six months out of the year. But um, anything you can do to stay more mobile, the better it is, because I do believe sitting is the new smoking, too. Like what yeah. a lot of healthcare professionals are saying as well. Yeah. Nope. That's a big, big thing that we say in physical therapy too. Sitting is the new smoking for sure. All the, and the research is coming out supporting it. Like sedentary jobs and sedentary lifestyles are basically what's causing a lot of the problems that we're seeing. And arthritis is one of them even like arthritis is not a given when you get older. It actually, um, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons put out a publication that basically said the 50 and older crowd is the most sedentary crowd and is the reason why arthritis is happening. So because you don't move your joints, they don't get lubricated, so they don't get nutrition, so they start to break down. Oh, so crazy. it's not... Now, there's some of us that have more inflammation in our bodies and there's a genetic element to it too, but by and large, that's the sedentary lifestyle. If you don't want arthritis, <laughs> stay moving. Yes, uh, yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming to the podcast and talking to us today. Where can people find out more about you? Where are you located? So go ahead and tell people where you're at. Yeah. We're, um, 
with Hanger Clinic, H-A-N-G-E-R, um, Hanger Clinic. We're located in Olympia, Washington. We're right a couple streets over from St. Pete's Providence Hospital. Um, but there's also Hanger Clinics across the country, really. But there is some up in Tacoma, Gig Harbor, Longview, Washington, too. If if there is ones closer to you, you can definitely look up different locations. That find the closest one near to you. Do you guys have a website or a Facebook page or any other social media thing that you want to announce? Yeah. So yeah, you can check us at www.hangerclinic.com. And then on there, you can find the links to our social media page. If you scroll all the way down as well, you can, we have Facebook page, I believe. Well, great. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Stay Healthy South Sound podcast brought to you by Penrose and Associates Physical Therapy. If you want some free tips to implement right away on various problems like knee pain, back pain, running injuries, and many more issues, then jump on over to PenrosePT.com and download the free report that fits your needs. You will receive helpful tips right away and have the choice to email in for further questions and set up a free phone consultation. You can reach us at 360-456-1444 and info at PenrosePT.com. You can stay connected with us at StayHealthySouthSound.com and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Stay Healthy South Sound podcast.